Welcome to the Night Flight Slumber Party. My name is Nick from the Found Footage Festival, and with me is Night Flight's own KJ. Hi, KJ. Hi. Hello. Uh, this is a very exciting episode uh, because I think, first and foremost, because of our great guests. Who do, who do we have on? In this episode, we have John Ross Bowie, Susan and Denise, and David Markey, the director of one of my favorite movies, Desperate Teenage Love Dolls. Yes, this film, if you haven't seen it, all shot on location in Los Angeles, covering the punk rock scene. It's incredible, and it's on Night Flight Plus. So you can actually go watch that. And if you haven't seen it already, we'll walk you through it. Then you can go back and watch the whole thing. And, you know, the theme of this episode with these things combined sort of turned into an just a complete social outcast amalgam of nerds, punks, and, like, bitchy misfits. So I think <laughs> we cover a lot of ground. We do, yeah. I think I fall into at least one of those categories. Maybe maybe, maybe two. I, I don't know. Uh <laughs> I'll let you be the judge. You are pure punk rock, Nick. Thank you. Thank you. I think of myself oh, yeah. as a bitchy misfit sometimes, but uh, <laughs> we'll see how the episode goes. With us to discuss at least a couple of these is uh, John Ross Bowie, who is a character actor that you might recognize from Curb Your Enthusiasm, uh, from the show Speechless, or from The Big Bang Theory. And he's got a podcast about character acting. It's called Household Faces. Welcome, John. John, thanks for uh, coming to our slumber party. I'm so glad to be here. Your house smells great. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And I noticed you are. Are those your pajamas or? Uh, they're, 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 they're clothes that I sleep in very often. I, I will often sleep in a novelty t-shirt of one kind or another. And this is my Buckaroo Banzai on the Hong Kong Cavaliers tour t-shirt that I bought um, uh, on a whim uh, a couple years ago while watching the film with my son. Um, so, which is proof because I was watching with my son, this is proof that I was not stoned. What did your son think of, uh, the movie? You know, he, he, he kind of loved it. He, um, it, you know, I forgot it kind of falls apart at the end. I love that movie, but it kind of like it's, yeah. it's last act is kind of a hot mess, but there's so many good ideas peppered throughout that he really dug it. And anytime he finds out that someone does like more than one thing for a living, uh, he immediately goes, oh, Buckaroo Banzai, because he's a brain surgeon and a rock star and a scientist. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's right. That's it. Yeah. Anyone, any polymath is Buckaroo Banzai to him. So we, it made its mark. I wonder about formative movies like that, because I remember when I was in uh, fifth grade, I was sick. I had a fever and my dad rented two movies for me. Uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Jesus. This is on VHS and um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Look, you stupid bastard, you've got no arms left. Yes, I have. Look, it's just a flesh wound. Those were both completely imprinted on my brain. I don't know if it was the fever, but just completely formed my sensibilities going forward. Fifth grade? Yeah, fifth grade. Well, that's early for 2001. It's early for Holy Grail, but it's really early for 2001. I saw that movie in my 30s, and it didn't make any sense to me. Um, <laughs> yeah, challenging. KJ, did you have any movies like that that were sort of imprinted on you? Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, the Forbidden Zone. I saw that when I was maybe 16. And it blew my mind apart really like i just became obsessed about every aspect of of that movie um and then john waters and a lot of my friends at the time were drag queens and they introduced me to that whole world so uh pink flamingos it, it, those are pr some probably pretty generic responses but it's true <laughs> they Kind of made no, me those are both those are both hardcore mind blowing. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you if you said that like Shawshank Redemption blew your mind, I'd be like, really? But uh, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, Pink Flamingos has a singing anus in it. That's allowed to blow your mind when you're 16. That's completely within your rights. We last saw you, John, on the Night Flight Devo New Year's Eve special. Uh, and thanks again for doing that. That is correct. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was such an honor. We were talking about that. That really awkward poll and that was my idea i was like let's bring the slumber party vibes guys and so oh so we did a we did a fuck marry kill didn't yeah and we? You, you you won the poll results of fuck which was okay 
it's good. Well, belated uh, you won by a landslide. Yeah. As validating as that was, I'd forgotten about it. Thanks for reminding me. That was nice. Yeah, most, take it where most I can get fuckable it. person on the uh, the Devo <laughs> New Year's Eve party. That's great. I wish we had there... some sort of trophy. <laughs> In retrospect. What would it even have looked? It would have been like an energy dome with a dildo next to it or something. <laughs> well, next New Year's Eve, exactly let's make that it. trophy. Yeah, splendid. Yeah. I know you're you're making a podcast, John, about character actors, and I'm fascinated about this. As as a, you know, do you consider yourself a character actor? I do, I do, um, and I, I I consider myself a character actor um, who always aspired to be a character actor. I am not taking my status as some sort of consolation prize on the way to leading man. I was always like, oh, I feel like I could move to L.A. and make a living like filling out the scenes, (laughs) (laughs) kind of being off in the corner. And, you know, there's there's stuff like, um, you know, the role on on Speechless was an outlier for me. Um, I almost didn't even go in because like, oh, I never booked these dad rules. He's going to be number two on the call sheet. I don't have a chance in hell. And then when it happened, there was absolutely no one as surprised as, as I was. Buddy, why do you care so much what other people think? Why don't you? Seriously, dad, don't you want to be normal? How can you live like this? You want to know how? Because all this stuff other people's opinions, it's nothing. You know, it's not nothing. The doctor tells you there's something wrong with your kid. All the things he's never gonna do, and it's a nice, long list. But look at your brother. He's great, smart, funny. Without naming names, he's apparently cooler than some of my other kids. So now when something happens, it's like, what else you got? Bring it on. But for the most of my career, I have been um, the the suspect who is very quickly eliminated in the questioning or um, <laughs> maybe twice I've actually been the bad guy who gets led away in handcuffs. Um, and um, I was the killer once on Monk. That was a huge honor. Um, and then there's just a lot of like um, – you know, weird nerds or, or strange accountants, or I've played a ton of dentists. I've played in in an inordinate (laughs) amount of dentists. And I, I wear this as a badge of honor. You know, I, I've always really, my eyes have always kind of been drawn to the corner of the screen and like, I'm, I'm into the movie star. That's fine. And I have people in that area whose work I enjoy, but I get really, into the Will Pattons and the Charles Durnings and the Brian Dennehy's of this world and the Barry Shabaka Henleys and the Celia Westons. And I'm just really drawn to those people who who aren't necessarily on an offer only basis too. You know, these are the people who still have to have hustle, who are in their 60s and 70s, still auditioning, still bringing it, who are not resting on their laurels. I just find that really inspiring. And it's been um, it's been super fun to talk to a bunch of them. It's admirable too, that. despite being so fuckable, that you've chosen to, the path of a of a character actor. Well, you know, I, I I listen. The sample study that deemed me fuckable was not particularly scientific. <laughs> it has not been peer reviewed, and I, I, it was the audience for a it was the audience for a night flight live stream with <laughs> Jerry from Devo. Right. So, yeah. This is listen, your core audience. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, you know, in the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And <laughs> uh, I, 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 I kind of feel that's that's me there. Um, yeah. I mean, that's that's my crowd. <laughs> you, you, you sort of alluded to the fact that this is not the easiest path, though. You have to hustle. And I know in your podcast you want to talk about about war stories. So what what are some of yours like of being in the trenches? Oh, I mean, you know, what What I ask everybody who does the podcast is I ask them about a role that got away. And most of them, I'd say 90% of them are super zen about it. And I've gotten very, very zen about it, too, in terms of like, oh, you know, I, I could have been blank in, in blank. And that maybe would have been a game changer. Maybe it wouldn't have. Maybe the show just would not have been what it was. Most people are, of all the roles that have slipped out of my fingers that I've auditioned for and not gotten, the one people are most amused by is Turtle in Entourage. <laughs> okay. Yeah, right? I'm, tr- I'm picturing it now. No, you can't. You can't, it's can you? It's tough. No. Um, uh, you know, and I, I honestly, you know, 
it, it's such an odd and it's it's funny too because I actually am from Queens. Um, uh, I don't know if you know this, but the, that gang was from Queens. They occasionally mentioned it on the show. Uh-huh. Um, but it wasn't one of those things where I was so bitter that I didn't watch the first like three seasons of that thing. Um, <laughs> uh, and then you know it's remarkable if you talk to anybody my age, like high forties, low fifties. <laughs> Even if we were never on The Office, we all auditioned for The Office. The Office spread such a wide net. And, you know, everyone's got their their driving up to Van Nuys to read for Greg Daniels' story. Uh, mine was a twofer because they they had me read for Dwight. And then they gave me the sides for Jim and said, eh, give this a shot. And they're like, nah, somewhere in between. Off you go. <laughs> <laughs> Neither. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, so it's just been it's been really funny listening to, um, you know, a quick spoiler alert. I had John Carroll Lynch on. But John Carroll Lynch is honest to goodness, one of my favorite actors to watch. I just have loved his work since the Drew Carey show. Uh, he's Norm Gunderson in Fargo. Uh, he's played John Wayne Gacy on American Horror Story. He's got this incredible broad resume auditioned for um, Walter White. Really? Mm-hmm. Auditioned. Oh. I had no idea, you know? And it's, you know, wow. Brian Cranston's not the kind of guy who's going to list the people who went out for the role <laughs> that he, he booked. You know, he's not that kind of a dick. But um, but John Carroll Lynch will be like, oh, yeah, I read I read for that. I read for Al Swearingen on Deadwood. He was incredibly forthcoming. Oh, yeah. So it was really, it's been really interesting. And what I, what I like about asking that question is the answers are always mind blowing because you can't help but go into sort of this Marvel alternate universe of like, oh, there's a, a universe where Al Swearingen is tall and bald. That's what, you know, and, and it's um, it, it's so fun for me as an actor and me as a fan to kind of consider those uh you know, the, the past that we're not taking. You know, we were talking about nerds and, and you being typecast sometimes as a nerdy guy, specifically your character in Big Bang Theory. Quag? Not a quag? Quag? Yeah, quap. We were talking about sort of the pop culture um, history of nerds and nerds in film and the evolution of nerds and this type of thing, like, what do you think uh, was the first instance of nerds actually kind of switching the tables and becoming kind of cool? I give this more thought than you you might even believe, really. Um, you know, it's it's tempting to say 1983's Revenge of the Nerds, despite its, um, its horrifically sanctioned rape scene. Um, but, you know, if you go a little further back, there's something... There's something to the the weird triumph of the underdog in, say, Hal Ashby's Harold and Maude oh, with the yeah. great Bud Court. Bud Court is a romantic lead, an unusual romantic lead, but a romantic lead nonetheless. I, I think about the kind of um, uh, the lineage of the media nerd and and where it um, w- when the the table sort of turned. I think worked about Big Bang was that. The four main nerds in the show, um, these are guys who would have been at the periphery of any other show. They would have been like, you know, the weirdo in the lab on the crime procedural. And, you know, let's go down and talk to Sheldon and Sheldon will work one day a week on this particular crime procedural. And he will he will say, hey, um, the prince matched. I'm odd. And that's it. He's done for the week. Uh, <laughs> and it took those characters and put them front and center. And I think people... Um, I think that might be the secret to the appeal is that people, I don't know, it's, it's hard to say, you know, it, it's so hard to like pick apart the phenomenology of something like that and, and what makes it so popular. But I think there was something to, you know, giving a voice to the heretofore voiceless um, uh, that, that people really responded to. And then there, there was the one hot nerd that finally came along in the eighties with Val Kilmer and Real Genius. Can you hammer a six-inch spike through a board with your penis? Not right now. A girl's got to have her standards. Real Genius is, I want to say, a year or two after Revenge of the Nerds, unless I'm yeah, mistaken. Yeah, it was right? after. It's like 84, mm-hmm. 85, right? It was, yeah, I, was I, think always, it was, I think it was 85. Yeah, and I was always struck, too, like when you see um, Robert Carradine, 
who plays Lewis in Revenge of the Nerds, when you see him out of nerd makeup, he's like a super handsome guy. <laughs> like, oh, very handsome guy. Dashing. Yeah. Yeah. He's short, but he's a handsome, he's a handsome short guy. Right. Yeah. No, full head of hair still to his credit. Yeah. Um, and Anthony Edward, Edwards was a good looking guy. Yeah. Anthony Edwards was, you know, six years later, seven years later, he was, he was the lead on ER, you know, he, he is an engaging, uh, he's the lead in Gotcha. Yeah. They, they right. upped some right. of those guys up a little bit, you know, in a weird yeah. uh, way. But, mm-hmm. uh, the girls too, uh, Michelle Mayrink, who is also in Valley Girl, who my hair is based on today with E.G. Daily. I got to say, fantastic, <laughs> but, fantastic. Um, Michelle Mayrink was adorable, and they nerded her up hard. Oh yeah, she's super cute. Yeah, yeah. definitely. She's still, glasses. She's and... still super cute in Revenge of the Nerds, so but. So I say, Michelle Mayrink, um, it reminded me so much of my first girlfriend or, or my first oh, girlfriend reminded cute. me of Michelle Mayrink and that kind of connected that how that somehow, <laughs> but, um, yeah, just the, everything with the overalls and the whole nine, it was just like, wow, that's interesting. <laughs> I, let's talk about your first girlfriend. I was reading about your, your oh, first girlfriend boy. and more in oh, no. your Heather's that. book here. And I was delighted to find so many personal personal um, anecdotes in this book, by the way. Yeah, well, that's nice to hear. It it, it was part of I, I won't. And the book wasn't big enough to have a backlash. But I think the um, I, I think the criticisms were that there was a little too much John and not enough Heather's in there. But it's such a personal film for me on so many fronts that I, I felt very um, I, I kept having to prove my my connection to this to that piece of work. Heather Chandler. Heather McNamara, Heather Duke, Veronica Sawyer. Why are you such a mega brat? Because I can be. And it was true that the the two of your first girlfriends were both named Heather, and you went to see Heather's with the Heather number two. That's, That's all correct. Uh, it was uh, um, um, uh, my junior year girlfriend and my senior year girlfriend were both Heather, two consecutive Heathers. But yeah, I, um, I, I, I went to go see Heathers with, um, my senior year girlfriend, uh, Heather, when the name Heather was still very much in vogue. I mean, obviously we're big fans of cult movies here at, at Night Flight, but what, what makes Heathers the ultimate cult movie? I know that makes it the ultimate cult movie, but it probably makes it the ultimate cult high school movie. And I will put that on top of... This is hard for me to say, but I'll, I'll put it ahead of Rock and Roll High School in that regard. I'll put it ahead of Three O'Clock High in that regard. Um, something about Heather's, where Heather's decides that it's going to be sort of an impression of high school rather than a, a gritty, this is how high school is. It's this is how high school feels. And part of that comes from the, the incredible, I mean, there's a whole chapter in there on uh, the use of color in the movie. The colors are there for a reason. Um, Heather McNamara is 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 incredibly afraid of breaking out of her her shell. She is in yellow the whole time. Heather um, Duke is ruled by envy. She's in green the whole time. It's all very very specific. It's all very there for a reason, and that isn't exactly how uh, necessarily how high school uh, girls dress. They don't necessarily coordinate that hardcore, but it felt true to me in a way that something that was purporting to be incredibly true, like the breakfast club didn't there, there was an accuracy in how over the top it was. I posted a a Heather's quote just yesterday on night flight when I was looking up your book and, uh, it was my teen angst bullshit has a body count. count. It's so good. It's so great. It's so (laughs) great. It's just, it's, it's a wonderful script. I've actually had the good fortune to read the massive, like 175 page draft that he initially got people interested in, which is, this is the one that he wanted that Daniel Waters wanted Stanley Kubrick to direct on the, on the idea that like, well, he's due to do a high school movie. He should do it. He's done a war movie and he's done, you know, all these other, obviously it's time for him to do his high school movie. And it's this, it's a tome. It is a chunk of text and it has, um, so many more deaths in it, <laughs> like a bunch of tertiary characters that live to the end of the finished film get killed off really early on. And then it ends famously um, the the scene that was never actually shot, the prom in heaven, where the school does, in fact, blow up with everybody in it and they are united at the prom. 
um, in heaven. Wow. And, uh, it I feel is, like everything uh, you're saying to me is coming at me in slow motion. Like, <laughs> I, this is so much information and it's just like, <laughs> it's even darker than the finished product. But I, you know, it's funny. I've, I've, I've talked to Daniel Waters about this and it, he was at first very, Daniel Waters, the, the screenwriter, he was at first very, very upset that his beloved prom in heaven ending was taken away. But as he's softened over the years, and as I've softened over the years, we both kind of agree that it, it ends on that moment with Veronica and Martha Dunstock in the hallway is such a lovely, hopeful note to end on. And it calls back with the really soulful cover of Kesarasara underscoring the credits. Ah, it's, it's a nice moment. I like it a lot. Yeah, I agree. I do like you, you wonder about like I know with the like little shop of horrors, like the, the original version, they yes. all get eaten. And then somewhere that's green is this perfect song to end it on because you're all inside of a plant and the whole world has been you know yeah yeah and then yeah. just to have the happy ending where they blow up the plant and save the world just sucks <laughs> but the but yeah the heather's ending i think is is actually a good al- alternate ending well frank oz says some really interesting things on the little shop of horrors uh commentary track guys you bring out the worst in me you absolutely bring out like the <laughs> most didactic geeky shit in me but Frank Oz says something really interesting on the Little Shop of Horrors commentary track. I had seen the Broadway show, which ends with the plants taking over and vines dropped down from the ceiling of the theater, um, uh, which was it, which was terrifying and hilarious. And then everyone came out and took a bow. And Frank Oz's theory, his rationale for changing the ending was that the audience in a movie theater is not going to get the bow. They're not going to get to see everybody come out. They're not going to see, they're not going to get to see the person step out of the plant who's been puppeting the plant the whole time, which was part of the bows in the off-Broadway production. Right. You are taken out of, of, of this carnage and like, oh, look, Seymour actually lived. Audrey actually lived. Okay. They're all in front of us for a moment. And you don't get that opportunity in a film, which is why the, the softened version, um, uh, exists. Um, I get the, the rationale. Yeah, that makes yeah. that actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I still love the movie so much. Now, the most menacing musical comedy ever to paint the silver screen. Green, Little Shop of Horrors. Where did you get such a weird plan? You get thrilled to the romance. Will you marry me? Sure. Witness the drama. You'll be a I really recommend, actually, it's a great commentary track. Get the DVD and watch it with the commentary because there's so much about cinematography and and acting in that commentary track because everybody comes in, you know, there's like eight cameos, people who came in and worked for like a morning, John Candy, Christopher Guest, all these people. Who, who, who have tiny little roles, Bill Murray. Frankly, Oz talks about directing the individual styles of these people. And uh, there's just a lot of really fun, nerdy specifics in there that I, I really enjoy. Oh, yeah. I love how nerds come up again with Seymour and Rick Moranis specifically. You know, yeah. talk about yeah. a typecast nerd. Who oh. has made a, who's been doing great with it. And I actually, yeah. I took to, He's so dreamy. when I was still on Twitter, bless your heart. Um, you know, it's so funny. I, I got to tell you, this is crazy. Um, my, before we were dating, my wife said we were backstage at the UCB theater, which is where we met and we were friends for a couple of years before we started dating. But my wife in passing mentioned that she had a massive crush on Rick Moranis. And I was like, <laughs> Marriage material. Hmm. I got a chance. I have a chance. (laughs) There's gold in them there, Hills. Um, uh, uh, Oh, so the last off-Broadway revival of of Little Shop put Jonathan Groff and then replaced him with Darren Chris as Seymour. Like, Hmm. put all these kind of hunky guys into that role. And I was like... And I, I actually I was still on Twitter at the time and I took to Twitter and I was like, really? Like you can't just let these guys be Sky Masterson and then give this role to some actual nerds out there, <laughs> some nerds who have like rich, interesting tenor voices. You've gotta they've gotta do everything, apparently. So they 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 are gonna they're gonna play Jesus in God's Bell and they're also gonna play Seymour <laughs> Crowborn. That's just they're gonna do everything. That's okay. okay. Just wanna make sure. That's great. <laughs> 
And like, I don't have like, I, I've never had the notes for that. You know, I'm, I'm not, I, I, I sing, but I'm not a singer, you know? And, and I, so it's, it's not even about me. It's about some nerd 15 years younger than me, you know, with maybe not the m- most perfect body mass index and, uh, <laughs> and, and astigmatism who, who deserves a crack at that part and doesn't need Darren Chris and his perfect fucking bone structure stepping in. <laughs> Yeah, that's not fair. That's let the guy play Hedwig. Let him play Hedwig. <laughs> that's another fun. They, off uh, they're bringing it back, and I think Jason Momoa is is uh, an early <laughs> fucking favorite. You monster! Uh, You're yeah, a monster, yeah. Nick. That's hate speech. That's hate speech. <laughs> I'll put some glasses on him, and he'll do fine. KJ, you wanted to maybe talk about early band experiences, stuff yes. like that, right? Okay, so Egghead, how cute is this? Yes, Egghead was a uh, was a band I was in. In the 90s with two college friends of mine, um, both of whom were named Mike, um, who uh, John and Michael being the most common names of my generation (laughs) um, and Heather. Um, uh, But Mike, Mike and I met at the college radio station at Ithaca College. So we came into this band um, with not a ton of musical skill, but this massive framed uh, uh, shared frame of reference where we could... um, just sort of say, oh, I need this to sound like that moment in the Throwing Muses uh, song. And and Mike, Mike and Mike are just like, got it, absolutely can do. Nice. Um, so that saved us a ton of time. It wasn't like finding each other through like ads in the back of the Village Voice or something. Like we were, we were, I was sort of meant to be in a, in a band with these nerds. Are there any gig horror stories from your your time? Oh in the my band? god! Are there gig horror stories? <laughs> Dear lord! That was I rhetorical. Mean, the, I assume there are. The, there are. There are. Yeah. No. I mean, there's you know, there's horror stories where the gig doesn't even happen, like where we drive to North Carolina and the woman's like, "Oh, that was tonight." You know. I mean, there's there's a million things like that. But um, yeah, I remember specifically a Richmond, Virginia show where we were the only punk band on an old ska bill, and the promoter was a really shady cat who said, oh, by the way, the headliner's canceled, and I need you to announce it from the stage. <laughs> so I had to go up there, and I had to tell, like, this sea of rude boys who could not have been less interested in our little garagey punk outfit. Like, uh, hey, the Scholar's canceled. <laughs> <laughs> Can you be the bad guys for us, please? And they're like, boo. And then we just played to like this hostile indifference for like a half an hour and then got the fuck out of that place like it was on fire. Just an absolute disastrous, disastrous gig. But there were also like incredible moments of like, you know, uh, playing a, uh, a roller rink in in uh in the fall of 1997 and um uh to like a, a relatively packed house and like kids in the front wearing our t-shirts and uh playing a weird house party at a, at a, a house in Athens, Georgia, that everyone in town called the dead body house. And we never got a straight answer. Why? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I guess I found a dead body here at some point. Like this is a recent thing or <laughs> <laughs> the original singer of REM maybe. Yeah, really. <laughs> um, um, uh, you know, I, it, it's one of those things where like, you know, uh, when you're in a band, I think this goes for acting too, but you, you sort of sometimes get paid in anecdotes, you know, and I, I think you, <laughs> you're foolish not to, it's sometimes hard at the moment to realize that one day you will look back and laugh at this, but, um, <laughs> you know, and speaking of like war stories, we were going to ask you, cause this is just something that I personally like to talk about with people and it's really random, but injuries, like worst injuries most like the, the funniest injuries that type of thing everyone's got a good story when it comes to this usually and i'll bet you do have I at do. least i do okay i do <laughs> so about 11 or 12 years ago i figured i've lived in la for a few years i should start golfing so i i i inherit really nice golf clubs from an uncle down in San Diego who passes away. And I inherit like these really nice, what is the brand? It's not Titleist. It's, um, uh, they're in the closet in the other room. They're really nice. Like they're, yeah. they're golf clubs that like, I do not deserve. I mean, this is like they, they, they've given Excalibur to like the Ron kid, you know, but I take a couple of them and I go to a simple little nine hole three part and I, I, I overshoot, 
uh, the hole and I end up in the brush. So I go over to the brush and uh, in order to get it back onto the green, I'm going to have to really whack it over this hill that is very, very uh, filled with uh, weeds and, and all, all sorts of like there's a bush and shit. So I'm really going to have to give it a whack, but not the whack that I gave it. And I whack it and it hits a nearby lamppost and comes right back into my face <laughs> and instantly blackens my eye and swells it shut. And I let out this girlish scream and I collect my shit. Can you replicate the scream? <laughs> I go back home and I'm just icing it. And my wife is like, smooth. And then I, I start marveling at like, well, this is crazy. This is, I mean, I hit, like, I was aiming over there. I hit a lamppost that was not in and it came right back and hit me of all places, hit me in the eye. I'm going to check in with my friend David, who is a sports statistician for ESPN. <laughs> he literally, his job is to analyze sports statistics. And I go, David, let me tell you what happened. I'm on the course, blah, blah, blah. And he writes back, buy a lottery ticket. <laughs> <laughs> it's lemons on a lemonade. I like that you, you spun it to make it a positive thing. Well, I mean, it was just the sheer, the sheer freak accident yeah. of it was yeah. so bizarre. <laughs> was so goddamn bizarre. And also, like, you know, I'm not an athletic guy by any stretch. And for me to have a sports injury, like, that's exactly the kind of sports injury a guy like me gets. You know, there's no, like, oh, yeah, I tore my rotator cuff playing rugby with the fellas. Nope. Nope. You were on a th nine-hole, three-par golf course, and you nearly broke your ocular cavity, you schmuck. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Oh, that's so good. We were coming up with a dare for you. And, um, Dear God, I I'm leaving this podcast immediately. This interview is over. <laughs> There's no good that can come from this. See, we play Truth or Dare with everybody that we interview. Sure. And, um, you know, slumber party vibes, you know. Mm -hmm. We could mm -hmm. not think of a dare for you. And I said, all I can think of are anal warts. I've got anal warts on the brain. And we were like, he, we should have him text someone and say, you know, is it normal for anal warts to be this itchy? And then we were going to have you text back, sorry, wrong number or wrong person. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the funniest person in my phone would be for me to text, is it normal for anal warts to be this itchy? And off the top of my head, let me think, probably mini driver. <laughs> Wow. Well, no, no. Oh, now that's that a has to great one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We should actually have you text that to multiple people so that you're <laughs> sure to get a response and we can compare the responses later. It'll be funny is if I, in, instead of sending like six individual texts, if I send out a group text. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. I did the I did the craziest thing uh, a couple months ago. I'm constantly like setting up FaceTime, like pocket FaceTiming people and pocket FaceTiming groups. <laughs> and I said, this is absolutely true. I set up a FaceTime call while my phone was just in my pocket and I was like bicycling around the neighborhood or something. And, and, uh, the three people who I, I, I tried to set up a FaceTime with were my therapist, my <laughs> late, my, my late mother, whose phone number I have not deleted uh, and oh. comedian Steve Ag. <laughs> I don't know if you guys, I don't That's know if you guys know mix. Steve Ag. And yeah. I, I was like, I was like, Hey, Whoops, and B, this is the best heist movie ever. <laughs> you guys, we're in this together right now. You're, you're right, right or die through. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's start with truth. What would you consider to be your most embarrassing moment? Well, the one that leaps out is, um, uh, is I'm at summer camp in 1986, summer before Little Shop of Horrors was released, and I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting by... I've just come out of the lake. I have just come out of the lake because I am in bathing trunks and I am sitting by the fire and one or two of the most beautiful girls in the camp are across the fire from me. One was named Natalie. I don't remember what the other one was named. Let's just Heather. say Heather. Yeah, <laughs> probably Heather. And um, I am not good with the ladies and I'm not, um, I've got a couple friends who are also really awkward and weird and I have just not come into my, I do, I do not have a girlfriend yet. Um, I, I, it's just not, 
It's just not in the cards right now. And they start giggling and I don't know what's going on, but they are giggling and they are giggling and they are giggling. And I look down and one of my, my right testicle has found its way out of my, the leg of my, my bathing trunks. Mm. And it's just sort of like hanging out on my thigh, just like, (laughs) just, just has taken to the air. And it was one of those things where I was just so defeated that I didn't like get up and storm out. I just grabbed my towel, put it on my lap, and was like, maybe next summer. Because <laughs> <laughs> testicles, you never really want people to see testicles. There's under no, no you know, no one has ever like there's no one who's ever been like, wow, you know who had a gorgeous scrotum? <laughs> <laughs> no, and they should be sometimes, but no, there just aren't people like that. No. As no. a woman, I can attest to this. No one's ever had a conversation about a beautiful set of balls. <laughs> no, no, no. I oh was Whitney God. Cummings had a Whitney Cummings had like a, a stray one liner where like, why do all balls look a thousand years old? <laughs> <laughs> we do have to get to the dare part of truth or dare. And I know this well, that's is weird the- because it's an or proposition there. So it kind of made it sound like I was <laughs> alpha hook. Having I'm told sorry. The truth. Our version, no. is, our version is truth and dare. Sorry. Truth I and dare. I see. Okay. Didn't, yeah, we didn't even let him choose. We're just like. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so KJ, out with it. Again, uh, anuses, uh, scrotums, anal warts, all of these things have been just in conversation today. And I don't think this is an accident. I think we need to use um, this as a line. You can contact someone famous in your phone and you ask them and this is the dare is it normal for anal warts to itch this much okay give me a second here what do we have here oh i want to make this count were we talking Mm. about mini driver yeah all right fine (laughs) here we go she back in the states I, I do not want to text her if it's 2 a.m. in London. No, she's back in the oh. States. She's back there. No, it's okay. Um, it's funny. I have her. I uh, It's a power move, but I have her in um, under her actual, uh, her, her the name she was born with, which is Amelia. <sighs> is Wow, even better. That's a cute name. Yeah. For <laughs> anal warts <laughs> to itch this much. It wrote Amal uh, Warts, um, <laughs> like uh, Amal Clooney. So I corrected that. And okay. <laughs> great. Appreciate the attention to detail there. There it is. Woo. With her and little she, cute she, little photo up there with her at the beach. It's in blue. Sorry, Ron Person. Should we have a backup that you text as well? Like, you don't She'll have Joey Mack She'll get back to me. She'll get back to me. Yeah. yeah. We're going to get her attention. It is. <laughs> um, she is. Uh, unless I'm. T- no, she's definitely. She just. She's definitely in L.A. She's definitely in L.A. Yeah. Um, yeah. It came let me, up let me blue. Through if there's anybody else. Yeah. Uh, who would. Um, who you'd be like, oh, yeah, that's good. Is it normal. For anal warts to itch this much? Question mark. She is listed in my phone as Dr. Bialik. Oh, <laughs> Mayim Bialik is going to get that text. No, Sorry, wrong person. <laughs> Bravo. That's it. That's all you're getting Bravo. from me. Bravo. That's oh, all no, you're getting that from is, me. That is more than enough, John. More than I'm enough. I'm so happy. I'm so happy. <laughs> You know, it's it's disgusting and and super super gross, but it's also really funny. I have to admit, I have to admit. Um, so the the top two texts on my phone right now are Minnie and Mayim. Sorry, wrong person. All right, you monsters, are you done with me? We just want to we just want to talk about your podcast briefly, so we can pitch it properly because we, we mentioned it up top, yes. but let's talk about what it's called and and uh, uh, it is. It is called Household Faces. Um, it's been amazing. We've got um, coming up, we have uh, Brooke Smith, um, who is, uh, um, she's supposed to put the lotion in the basket. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, I, I Grey's Anatomy, Vanya on 42nd Street. She's done a bunch of stuff. Uh, Spencer Garrett, who um, plays newscasters and pricks in suits all the time. That's his <laughs> quote. Nice. Um, 
it's been incredible. It's been, I've gotten to meet so many people who've worked I've, I've loved, or I've gotten to talk to people who I've known for years, but go really like deep uh, into their careers and their, and their lives and, and discuss stuff that we we've never talked about before. So it's been really, really, uh, really fun. Fantastic. I love this idea. It's brilliant. We're looking forward to the podcast. John, thanks for coming to our slumber party. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, much for having me. I'm going to drift off to sleep now. Please don't talk about me or draw on my face. Oh, wait, wait. We didn't wait to see if they had texted you back. Nope. They're still passing the phone around, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, report back if you do hear back. Really, will I mean, you? Was, and- um, oh, interesting. I actually included a typo to Mayams. It says, is it normal for anal warts to each this much? <laughs> <laughs> so that's even better. So we're done, here's what we're going to do. I'm, I've written sorry, wrong person, and now I'm going to put asterisk itch. <laughs> Bravo. That's above and beyond the call, guys. That is Bra- above and beyond the call. Bravo. You're the best. Thank you so much. Nice talking to you guys. <laughs> well, that was the delightful John Ross Bowie, who I imagine is getting some interesting texts from uh, Maya Bialik and Mini Driver right now. And possibly some good advice. That's true. That that could be the case, too. <laughs> Moving forward, we do have a Slumber Party sponsor this episode. Our Slumber Party experts are joining us, Susan and Denise. Oh, great. Well, we teased this up top, but I'm very excited to talk about the movie Desperate Teenage Love Dolls, a movie that you turned me on to. But what is it about this movie that is so special, KJ? Well, first of all, it's highly quotable. And that is one of the most important qualities that a film can really grab in somebody, I think. Secondly, this is a portrait like a time capsule of this very specific point in time in a very specific place that I think a lot of people kind of hold near and dear to their heart, which is this brink of punk rock that was coming out of L.A. at this time in the early 80s. I'm going to get the band together and we're going to rock L.A. Rock L.A.? The Love Dolls are going to rock the world. Fuck yeah. Why don't you and your toy dog put the fucking asses off my turf? Or else me and my homegirl's gonna kick your fucking ass, bitch. You've been picking all the streets and you haven't met your match. Well, here's some advice for funny kitty and patch. Okay, so you got a little taste of the movie there. We're gonna show you more of it. And we're going to do that with David Markey himself, the director, who also directed another seminal music uh, movie, 1991, The Year Punk Broke, featuring a ton of great bands. That's right, including Nirvana, Sonic Youth, and the Ramones. And he just happened to be at the right place at the right time with his 8mm. Yeah, thank God he was. So let's talk to uh, (laughs) David Markey. We have to talk about Desperate Teenage Love Dolls. It's a movie that KJ and I are obsessed with. And can you tell us about the making of it? Wow. Uh, Yeah, I started making that 37 years ago, 1983, on the heels of uh, my fanzine and my band sort of falling apart. And uh, I just said, okay, I'm going to go off and make this movie now. So... uh, it really came out of uh, my time in the LA, you know, punk scene. Was it fun making the movie? I mean, it looks like you had fun making it. It was, it was a blast. I mean, I didn't really have much else going on in order to get people there than, than, than just sort of the energy that we had going around. And uh, fortunately it was made with uh, quite a few older friends of mine. Like I said, uh, new friends that I had sort of made from playing in bands on the LA scene at the time. And also that we got power of fancy, 
but uh, in a very much, you know, in a very uh, cut and paste uh, kind of fanzine type way. Uh, I think that energy really sort of translates into this film. What's good? What's the love song? What do you prostitutes or something? No, that's not bad. You're banned, huh? Well, listen, this rock star. When you mess with Kanye Hurst, you're messing with all the she devils. And you don't fuck with the she devils. So Red Cross, how were you introduced to this band? Is this a band you played with? Is that how you became friends? And Yeah, I played some shows with them before I sort of really uh, became closer friends with them. I think the first time I met them was an interview that... Uh, I sort of sat in on that was being done for the fanzine. And I remember that being done at Okie Dogs, which was this LA punk rock hangout, after hours, kind of weirdo freak scene uh, up there on Santa Monica Boulevard. It was an interesting place because it just didn't attract punks. It had a lot of uh, other walks of life going through from, from the area, but also weird celebrities would come up like Rick James nice. and Warhol. Uh, wow. But like when I think back, I go, yeah, like I, I, I often tell people about meeting Andy Warhol and it wouldn't have happened without it being at Okie Dogs, which was this really kind of rundown hangout post gig kind of thing. And uh, I would see all my favorite bands sitting there at tables eating they're hot dogs. Like Black Flag would be there, like like a family, like and just sort of sit there and kind of ogle at the spectacle. And it all sort of happened around this weird scene, and also where I met so many people um, as well, including Red Cross, who I of course cast in the film um, pretty much right away. Hey Johnny, baby, boy George on line one, Nikki six on line three. Put Nikki on hold and tell George you already lost out to Brooke Shields. Okay. Let's talk about some of the memorable scenes in the movie. I think um, <laughs> I love the acid trip scene. Uh, oh, what the, oh, oh my God. That, that couldn't have went more perfect. We had very few <laughs> so things good. to play with effects uh we had a strobe light uh and sort of did this technique that i learned from watching bewitched as a kid where you have the camera <laughs> locked off and you're shooting and then you pause to, and then you, you have the actor freeze and then you change something and then you start rolling again so it's this very cheap effect and we did that with a strobe light on john tremaine as he was sort of coming on to the drug and the experience and freaking out, <laughs> sitting there in front of a TV set watching Dawn, Portrait of a Teenage Runaway, starring Eve Plum from The Brady Bunch. Look at yourself. You don't look sick to me. Don't you run away from me, Dawn. Come back here. Dawn. What's wrong? That guy's still hungry. You kill somebody, you're doper. I stole a book. All of this has deep cultural importance to us. And we were cautiously laying it out that way. Uh, if you've never ever seen that film, it's on YouTube. Yes. Check it out. <laughs> I mean, we, 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 we lift dialogue right from it. We also lift dialogue from the movie Foxes. Meet Jeannie, Annie, Madge, and Deirdre. Not exactly the girls next door. Hey, anything you want, baby? Not from you, slime. <laughs> they move to a beat all their own. Watch them move, watch them shake it. They're foxes. I think the film was really sort of like a regurgitation of all of that 70s culture, just sort of purging it out of ourselves. You, you know, you, you talked about dialogue and lifting it from... TV movies and things. Can you tell us about the line, hey, thanks for killing my mom? Thanks for killing my mom. Hey, no problem. That was an original line. 
it was learning from me. Uh, that was your, times, yeah. A lot of times when we were shooting, we would have a sort of a rough idea of what we were doing. We might have even had some dialogue written. But uh, the thanks for killing my mom thing just really came out of uh, a spontaneous uh, kind of inspiration. And, uh, it's funny because we shot that scene, the reaction scene after the murder of the mother, uh, like probably several months later at a total <laughs> location. Uh, so, you know, maybe I had some time to think about it. And uh, it just sort of happens. I think the delivery of that line is what makes it even more special and Having gotten so far away from filming the scene, I think, um, really adds a lot with that blase tone of "thanks for killing my mom" kind of thing, and it's it's just so good. And Jennifer I, <laughs> was just she was perfect. Her delivery was perfect, and of course, Janet. Uh, you know, her riot response was very much something Janet would say. I would also love to throw out that there's going to be a 4K restoration of. Desperate Teenage Love Dolls. That's also underway. And uh, it just looks amazing in a way that the film never did. But uh, it, pretty excited about it. I think the next step is IMAX. But beyond that, I think... Uh... <laughs> with, with the meager resources that uh, I had when I was making the film, I never would have imagined that, you know, so almost 40 years later that, that it would still be alive, still be around and pretty, pretty happy about that. And pretty surprised as well. We're proud to have it available on night flight plus. Well, I don't want to speak for KJ, but I am, I'm hoping for a love dolls reunion at some point. Oh yeah, definitely. And, <laughs> I, and I'm hungry for an Okie dog too. I mean, the description of the Okie dog, just <laughs> my mouth watering. You know, the recipes online. <laughs> okay. <laughs> love dolls. I'm going to kill that bitch. David Markey. And once again, check out Desperate Teenage Love Dolls. The full movie is on Night Flight Plus streaming right now. Thank you so much again to John Ross Bowie and David Markey. And of course, our sponsors, Susan and Denise. And KJ, thanks for killing my mom for me. Hey, no problem. The Night Flight Slumber Party is hosted by me, Nick Brewer, and Night Flight media producer, Kara Jean. It's executive produced by Stuart S. Shapiro and produced by Kara Jean and Thomas Malarney. The podcast is edited by me with audio mastering by Bailey Math. Original music by Kara Jean. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.